thank you all for coming back for the last 50 meters of this marathon. I feel like those pictures of people at the end of the London Marathon crawling across the line. But it's also been an intellectual banquet and an amazing exercise in battering Europe. We've had lots of images <laughs> from art and music and theatre. And I must say, the images came to my mind as, as the two days progressed was, some of you will know that Banksy, the graffito artist, Mona Lisa, which as soon as it had been sold for a vast sum of money, started shredding itself. And the theatrical image I had for Katie was that Jean-Claude Juncker been <laughs> chained to his chair for 48 hours without any wine, watching while all the self-congratulatory platitudes that he mouths about the EU were shredded in front of his eyes. Um, so Europe, we've been told, weak, divided, boring, unattractive, fearful, impotent, self-deceiving, mendacious, patronizing, and hypocritical. And that was only yesterday evening. And then this morning, it got even worse. A continent which uh, doesn't have equality before the law, which encourages refugees to cheat in the name of law, to lie in the name of truth. Uh, an example to India, but an example for how keeping refugees out. And then in my book, worst of all, the story that Khaled Fahmy told is very powerful about soaring arms exports to Middle Eastern dictators, arms to be used to kill their own people or their neighbors and send more refugees across the Mediterranean. So this was a rather sobering, um, sobering sequence. However, now, uh, in our last session, out of this gloomy cacophony, a wonderful polyphony is about to emerge. And to give us this polyphony, we have two wonderful speakers, Natalie Louvarier and Daniel Jutt. They will each speak for 10 to 15 minutes. And then we'll have a discussion which is as much about concluding reflections as about a direct Q&A. Natalie. Thank you. Thank you, Timothy. Um, when, when Timothy told me that I would be tasked with trying to create a polyphony out of the cacophony, I was, I was absolutely petrified. Um, and so I will not attempt that, um, but I, I did want to start by just taking stock um, with, with all of you of the moment and the place that we're, we've had this conversation. The moment is, uh, you know, in the middle of the Brexit debate, uh, um, the, the, also two weeks, just two weeks ahead of the EU elections, which will be a big test for, for the European project. Um, and. And it's also, you know, just in the course of these two days, news, bits of news have broken. You know, of course, there were local elections in, in, in England. Um, and, and, um, and we found out that um, uh, Salvini, Matteo Salvini, the, the, who, you know, stands out as um, the single most powerful far-right politician in Europe today because he essentially runs the government of a founding member state. He traveled to Hungary and met with Viktor Orban, the self-proclaimed champion of illiberalism, just, just two days ago. Um, and something else is happening. Um, we, we learned that Viktor Orban himself is going to travel to 
Washington and meet with Donald Trump and precisely on the 13th of May, so that's roughly 12 days before the new elections. What signal does that send uh, also from America? And on the 13th of May, I, I got an email inviting me to this, and I, I won't be able to go, but um, in London, um, a gentleman called Yoram uh, Hazonin, I don't know if his name is familiar to any of you, he's, he's a thinker on nationalism, which I, I, I heard a lot about when I was in Washington in February, and has been described by several people who know the Washington bubble much better than I do, as, as a thinker that the people inside the, Bush, the, the Trump administration read uh, rather intensively these days. And he's going to be, for the first time in London, and giving a conference on the 13th of May with, I'd say, hardline Brexiteers um, attending and some Polish uh, peace and justice support, apparently, and, and other such networks. And I wanted just to, you know, just to give, set the stage for the moment we're in. The title of that conference is Europe at a Crossroads, the future of Europe, national identity, and the virtues of nationalism. Um, so that's that's the moment in which we're having we're having this 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 conversation. So I don't know if, if you anticipated all of this, uh, Timothy, when you when you, when you uh, organized everything. But it's uh, certainly a very timely uh, debate, and it's a very rich debate. I I thought I'd give you. Um, little, I, I thought I'd send you little postcards from these moments of the last two days, like just snippets of things that struck me that were said, and perhaps to you know ner ner feed the conversation later on. So I, I, I jotted down some of the you know some quotes from from various people. This is not an attempt to summarize everything that somebody said, nor is it to, an attempt to summarize the whole the whole conference, the whole forum. Um, but I hope, I hope I'll be faithfully you know, restituting some of, some of what was said. So we started with the cacophony, and, and you, you told us at the, at the start of the conference that this would start with the cacophony, and we would try to move towards polyphony, um, perhaps symphony. <laughs> um, and so the things that struck me, I'm just going to quote a, a few people, and again, I'm not quoting everybody. Um, Catherine Bernold from, from the New York Times described a car mechanic in Strasbourg who crosses the border 100 times a year, uh, over 100 times a year, and, and he was saying, Europe here is banal and it is miraculous. She also mentioned in Saxony farmers who say that Europe, the EU, cares much more about wolves than it does about the local people, and he said, and yet we are the endangered species. So right there we had immediately two very, very uh, different polarized versions of the EU. Isabel Hoffman told us, very interestingly from her study, um, that Europeans do care very much about, about the project, and they know more than we think about Europe, and they pay attention to European politics. They have high expectations about EU the EU and its politics, which is interesting to know in the run-up to those elections later this month. Um, they're not always very happy with the reality. That's the problem. Daniel, I'm going to quote you because you, you, you described this um, very interesting study by, by Chatham House. And what I took, one of the things I took away is that the tribes, the tribes that, um, <coughs> that we, the media, and part of the media, uh, like to make, produce so many headlines about, 
aren't necessarily always very representative of, um, of the state of public opinion in Europe, and in particular, the, the tribe called EU rejectors. But that tribe makes a lot of headlines, but in, the, in that survey you mentioned, it's, it represents 14% of people across the continent, that's all. <coughs> so Europe is up for grabs, and the widest uh, reaction is not rejection of, of the EU, it is hesitancy about the EU. Gisela, Gisela Stewart said, she mentioned McCullen's, Don McCullen's um, photo exhibit at, at the Tate Gallery in London, which I really encourage you to go and see. And she mentioned the photo of a young boy in 1961 in East Berlin looking over the wall. And she said, this is my story. Whatever happens with Brexit, I won't let that story taken from me. I thought that was interesting. Andras Lansen from Hungary uh, warned us that Western liberal culture had become disconnected from reality. Man is a communal being, he said. The individual has earned such a position that the community is left ignored or disparaged. Slavic, Slavomir, self-described as a good Pole, said, uh, he listed among, the, among the, the key accomplishments of the EU, he said, independence, the safeguarding of independence. And he asked us separately, would NATO survive the EU? At dinner, we were all, I think, moved, extremely moved by Peter Pulser's recollections of his childhood in, in the Austria of the 1930s, witnessing the Anschluss, which marked the end of a certain world for him, and to him, the beginning of World War II. Those were stories of Europe when we were 20, like windows into a, a tortured, changing, shifting, reinvented continent. I'll go on for, for a few more minutes with Croats. Andrew Hurrell, who was one of the two or three people, I think, in the room on the first day who voted, uh, who voted, put up his hand to say, I'm, yeah, I'm a federalist. Um, he told us early on, and that, that goes to the conversation, that the debate that we've just had, very, we've just heard, very, very uh, stimulating one. He said, there's an internalist aspect to our discussion. Um, he, he reminded us that much of Europe's narrative has been in relation to the other. Europe is no longer in the middle of the world. Calypso Nicolaides asked us, we all have our stories. She was thinking about that Europe when we were 20 uh, presentation. We all have our stories, but how do they connect? Europe is a babel, yes, but it does have some simultaneous translation. And she mentioned the importance of feeling recognized which I really take away as an important thing. Quarreling, quarreling among each other, amongst ourselves, even throwing insults at each other is also a way to know each other. So there's a silver lining to contestation, said Calypso. Uh, Carolyn Dutlinger, who, who, who spoke brilliantly about space, identity, Kafka the Chinese, uh, walls that are not boundaries but mental constructions, boundaries are futile, an illusion, and yet they are vital. She mentioned Thomas Mann, Venice, the perfect liminal space, she said, half land, half water, like an edge of Europe. Literature helps establish identity, and the beauty of literature is also to explore what happens when your identity falls apart. I'll go on for a few more minutes with quotes. Ian Kershaw, 
reminded us of the somewheres versus nowheres uh, narrative. And he said, multiculturalism works in London or Oxford where, is, where there is natural intellectual mingling, but not in Northern England where I come from. Margaret Macmillan told us, looking at Europe from the outside helps see, helps see cohesion, but let's not create a narrative. Europe is a work in progress. No single narrative supersedes all the others. Andreas Wirsching said, Europe's crisis is undeniable, but it could prove less damaging than we think. In particular, if the British decide it's much better to stay than to take to the open seas. Constanze Itzel from the House of European History in Brussels said something very important, I think, about emotions. She said, people tend to go to museums to confirm their worldview, but that can change. Their worldview, their worldview can change as they visit a museum if they are made to feel emotion, if they are made to feel empathy. Michael Schwartz from the Mercato Foundation told us about a smart question that his team asked politicians, MPs from various countries. Rather than asking them, what's your position on fiscal policy? The question was, why are you a politician? And I think, I think that, that really makes sense to really widen the question, you know, what is it to be European? Why are, why, and ask, you know, MEPs or any other politician, why are you a European politician? Katie, Katie from the world of uh, theater, um, told us about losing the plot. A story needs three things, where it takes place, where it begins and ends, and what happens. And she asked us, Europe, one place, one day, one event. If you had to choose, what would it be? And she quoted William Blake to help us in inspiration. And the, the quote was, to see the world in a grain of sand. So I, I checked that quote, and I found, I found the, larger, the larger quote, and I'm going to read it, because I think it's beautiful, and this, this helps us. To see the world in a grain of sand, and heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. But then after all of this came the Timothy Snyder bombshell. The fable of the wise nation. Europe is a soft, was a soft landing for empires lost, not the result of a wise nation or wise nations having learnt that war is bad. And you told us the trouble with our general narrative about Europe is that not only is it delusional, but it actually feeds the narrative of those who say there is a place to go back to after Europe, after membership, the nation state. He says that doesn't exist. And meanwhile, he said, empires outside of Europe are waiting, waiting for us to pounce on us. So it was a brilliant 10th Darendorf lecture, not one that everybody agreed on, uh, agreed with, I would say. Um, but maybe Timothy Snyder was right on one thing. Maybe we don't need a narrative. Maybe we need history and common sense politics. Still, uh, I think I wasn't the only one to be a little bit shaken by his, by his talk, and I, I felt a little bit like the, the man he described at the very beginning, saying that this man who arriving in Oxford had lost his luggage. I, I, I felt like I was going to be scrambling for my luggage. Um, <laughs> there were many, many metaphors uh, throughout this conference, as you said, 
as you said, Timothy, carpets, the carpet, music, weaving, threads, a ship sailing in one direction and people on its deck moving in another direction. The carpet was a poignant metaphor by, by I am Sirho, sorry. And, uh, and also she mentioned the, the musical metaphor. You know, you need a tune, you need a mode, you need a beat. Catalin Barsoni uh, showed us her, her very emotional, striking film, short film on I am a Romani woman, I am European. And she said, if we need a new story, then that story has to be about diversity and solidarity. But I want to throw in another metaphor, which is the fox. Um, and I'm, I'm stealing it from, from Tony Judd's book, uh, Post-War. It's right at the beginning, in the introduction. He, he quotes a Greek poet who, who uh, puts a fox and a hedgehog in the same sentence. And he says, the hedgehogs, the hedgehog knows one big thing. The fox knows many things. And I think, and, 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 and Tony Judd says, Europe knows many things. And perhaps the question we should ask ourselves is, is not so much, you know, what is, what is our, our, what is the sound we produce? Is it cacophony? Is it polyphony? Perhaps we have to take stock and, and ask ourselves, what do we know? What do we know? about ourselves, uh, about this region, this part of the world, and its relation to others. And then, like foxes, maybe we have to ask, uh, knowing what we know, what can we do, and, and, and how do we do it? And that's my takeaway. <laughs>
um, leading perhaps most famously to the idea of the melting pot and in its most extreme form, Teddy Roosevelt's idea of 100% Americanism. Uh, but there were opponents to this, including one who wrote a very famous essay in The Nation, Horace Kalin, named Democracy versus the Melting Pot. Um, and Kalin uh, articulated the problem that America was facing then in a way that might feel familiar to people who have been at this conference. He wrote, our spirit, the American spirit, is inarticulate, not a voice, but a chorus of many voices, each singing a rather different tune. What must, what shall this cacophony become? A unison or a harmony? And Kalin's response was not to say 100% Americanism. It wasn't quite to deny Americanism, but it was to pull a kind of clever dialectical trick and say, the rise, I'm quoting, the rise of the cultural consciousness and social autonomy of the immigrant Irishman, German, Scandinavian, Jew, Pole, or Bohemian is Americanization. Americanization, he said, has not repressed nationality. Americanization has liberated nationality. Um, and he went on to say that American civilization may come to mean the perfection of the cooperative harmonies of European civilization, the waste, the squalor, and the distress of Europe being eliminated, a multiplicity <clears throat> and unity, an orchestration of mankind. Natalie, as you said, a symphony. Uh, so two lessons, I think, from this into our conference. The first is that if the European experiment doesn't work out, come to America and we'll take care of it. Um, the second is that Kalin gets polyphony out of this cacophony by pulling this kind of dialectical move by saying, the more American is the more national, the more diverse, right? Um, Americanization has liberated nationality. And I would like to suggest that that's one theme that we've seen at this conference. The idea that Europeanization, if I could put it that way, far from repressing European nationalities, liberates them, or perhaps more than liberates them, it makes those nationalities possible. And it makes them possible by protecting them. And that's the polyphony that I think I'd like to try and draw from this weekend of cacophony. Narratives that we've heard here have been I would say almost universally centered on protection. And that word has come up quite a lot over this past weekend. Um, now the, the polyphony and the reason it's not a unity is that there is some question of whom or what Europe is protecting. And I would say that there are two kinds of protection narratives that we've seen. The first, which Tim Snyder would tell us is what we get from the fable of the wise nation, is a narrative of Europe as a project that protects its nations from themselves, from Europe's own worst instincts. Um, it learns from war, and it, it creates a system that protects from within. And the second is Europe as protecting its nations from something outside, from the rest of the world, which is, in a sense, the narrative that we get if we accept Tim's history that he gave us yesterday. Um, and was, I think, the narrative he was encouraging us to, to take up. Um, what struck me about the conference is that the first narrative, Europe as protecting its nations from themselves, while it's perhaps true that this is a widespread narrative outside of this conference room, I did not hear much of it here. We heard it to some extent. On the second day, Andreas 
Ersching told us that the, to think of the EU as perhaps a, quote, binding set of principles that protects Europeans against themselves. And I thought also the car mechanic in Strasbourg that uh, Katrin Benholt recounted, Europe is everyday life, it is banal, it is miraculous, because it protects from within. But what's striking to me is that as I looked back through my notes, I actually couldn't find many instances of that narrative coming up at all. Um, the Europe as self-protector, so the narrative that should come out of the wise nation fable that Tim so um, brilliantly eviscerated last night, was actually, I would say, at this conference largely absent. And instead, when I looked back through my notes, I saw a lot of the second protection narrative. Europe as protection from the outside, um, the one that we would expect to come from Tim's corrected, in quotes, historical record, um, which is perhaps to say that, in fact, rather than Tim's speech destabilizing us, we were moving quite readily towards the narrative that he was going to push us to accept. And that began even on the very first panel, where we were told by Isabel Hoffman of the Opinions that far from globalization and EU integration being linked in people's minds, quite to the contrary, people saw Europe, as their poll showed, as the, quote, protector against that globalization. On day two, Andreas Virshing, and I'm quoting him again because he put these things so well and so concisely, um, said that this was not, the European narrative was not a question of the nation state versus the EU, rather that the EU was, quote, the assertion of the nation state. And though Tim told us to be wary of the nation state, I would actually say this is quite close to the argument that we've been moving toward after his talk on Friday. Um, instead of the EU nation-state dichotomy, uh, the EU enables nation-states as they conceive of themselves to survive uh, by protecting them and sort of cordoning them off from the threats outside. Calypso Michelides made a similar argument later on, asked in question, isn't the European story about a, quote, rescued, radically open nation-state in a Europe and that nation state exists only because Europe, in her words. So that's the good side of this narrative. But I think we also saw a lot of the negative side. The narrative produced by Europe as protector from the outside can be used to very sinister ends too, and I think we learned that at this conference. And indeed, I would say that's the story we heard the most. So we heard anger against the EU, anger against, in the first panel from Katrine, Uber against, quote, the EU of industry, oligarchs, and big companies. In other words, an EU that had failed to protect against globalization, that had failed to protect, we've now talked today, uh, so the narrative goes, against refugees, perhaps, and how those, that question of refugees so determines one's view of Europe, um, as we heard both from IAM today and from the Chatham House survey. Uh, so again, a question of protection. Do we protect against refugees, or do we protect refugees from the things they are coming from? But either way, the frame is the same. Europe is a protector. Um, and we heard that also from the second panel on Thursday, um, a question either coming from anti-EU, an anti-EU voice in Hungary, or even from a pro-federalist voice from Volt. There's always the narrative of Europe was centered around whether it had succeeded in protecting its people. Uh, Tim yesterday 
call this, call, call this kind of Europe a buffer. Ion today referred to it as a barrier. And I think that exemplifies the way in which this narrative can be used one way or the other. Um, and as we heard in the last panel, the increase in Europe's budget for border control, the proposed increase, and as one panelist put it, the securitization of Schengen, reinforce this narrative. It does have some basis in reality, it seems. The EU wants to be a protector. So what strikes me about all of these protection narratives is that they tell a deeply conservative story of Europe. And I mean that in a very literal sense. There is something to be preserved within Europe. What that thing is is up for debate, but it's to be preserved against the outside. And I think at worst, as we can all obviously imagine, this is a very dangerous way to think of Europe. It's expanding the nationalist mindset out to international borders, but it's making a cut somewhere. At best, perhaps the dominant narrative that has, the that has come out of this cacophony is a kind of following Judith Schlar and her liberalism of fear, European Union of fear, a kind of damage control European Union, as, as Schlar would put it, guarding against either itself or against the empires and digital forces around it. Um, but as Ayan said today, I'm quoting her, if Europe is very difficult to define, it's even more difficult to protect. And I wonder, our project, as we move out of this conference, I'm part of the research team, is about the, um, the 89er generation in Europe. And speaking as an 89er myself, if Europe does not protect against the threat that to my generation will be the major threat, climate change, then a narrative of Europe, a story of Europe as a protection, is not going to work very well at all. Um, but another story we've told, and I'll close on this, which I won't fully address, hopefully we can explore it in the comments, is on a slightly different level, we've been discussing how far you can take narrative, whether we should perhaps be playing a little more cautiously with this term. And I think this is an important note to end on on a conference that is expanding into a project about narratives, looking for narratives in Europe. We've heard from some of our speakers um, like Katie, uh, and some of our talks about literature, that there are perhaps places where narrative is better suited, theater, literature, fiction, and places where it is less well suited, as Sir Ian Kershaw reminded us, um, of history, and perhaps Tim Snyder too. Um, it seems that perhaps rather than having a narrative of protection, there might be some case for cordoning off the idea of narrative itself, given that borders. Um, and so I think that what that leaves me with, and what I'd like to kind of open the floor up to, um, if that's okay, is a question of um, both what stories we've told here and in what form we should be telling them. Um, because, and, and, and some caution about not exaggerating the importance of those stories too much or the power. Um, and I wasn't planning on ending on this, and I, I um, sort of promised myself that I wouldn't, but um, since Natalie brought it up, uh, I am Tony Judd's son. Um, and 
uh, of course, his voice has loomed large over this conference for me. Um, and last night, I went back and read an old essay from 1996 called Europe, a Grand Illusion, um, where he urged us to exercise that same kind of caution. Um, and I, I, prom I promised myself that I would never, ever, ever try and speak for him. But I can at least, if I can remember the quote right, said that um, Europe is more than a geographical notion, but less than an answer. And perhaps what we can take from this conference is that Europe is more than a narrative, but less than an answer. Thanks. Published just at the high point of what seemed like European success in 2005 6.